I'm Larry Jacobs. I am a faculty at the University of Minnesota's uh, Humphrey School and direct the, the um, Center uh, for the Study of Politics and Governance. Today's program, the new danger in voting legislation. Uh, and we've got a terrific panel. Richard Hassan is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law, campaign finance regulation, and an author of leading case uh, books on election law. Uh, he's also the uh, writer of the popular election law blog. Joining uh, Professor Hassan is Michael Morley, who's an associate professor at Florida State University College of Law, uh, who teaches a number of courses um, including election law, constitutional law, uh, and more. He's best known for his work on election emergencies and post-election litigation. This is an all-star uh, panel. It's being moderated by Tammy Patrick, who's a senior advisor in the elections program at the Democracy Fund. And to many of you in the field of election administration, Tammy Patrick is a go-to person. So without further ado, Tammy Patrick. Well, thanks so much, Larry. And I'm, I'm so excited for this conversation today. Um, I'm thrilled to be joined um, by Rick and by Michael. So one of the things that we, um, we've been thinking about a lot in the last 12 months to 15 months um, with the onset of the, the pandemic is whether or not our laws truly serve our, our citizens well in regular times, as well as when, um, when we have catastrophe strike. Um, this year's state legislative session has really gotten a lot of attention around the, the bills being introduced that impact the citizens' ability to register to vote and then to participate in voting itself. But when we talk about who's responsible for our elections after the voting happens and the vote is counted, we are seeing a lot of traction around that time frame and that activity. So today we really want to focus on those bills, those changes in the law that can subvert the will of the people and potentially insert extreme partisan power into the changing of election results. Um, earlier this week, the National Conference of State Legislatures published their June Canvas newsletter, and they really highlighted two main points. First is the volume of election bills that we've seen this year. It's over 3,000. And they also say, and this is a direct quote, that more significant than the jump in introductions of bills is the shift in content, that legislators have brought their attention to both new issues and topics that have been around for a while, but rarely commanded this type of attention. And so this year they, they lay out that we see both bills enacting whether or not local election officials can accept outside funding and grants, but also bills and enactments concerning state authority over a local election officials. And there are bills, but no enactments yet, increasing legislative oversight of the selection of presidential electors. So that's really what I'd like to explore today and dive in on what this could mean, both for who's responsible for the conduct of our elections, the voters that they serve, and then what we might be looking at as we move forward into the midterms next year and some of these bills become law. So with that, I want to, um, to start off kind of laying a little bit of a groundwork. We have a lot of people joining our conversation today that maybe don't understand necessarily the decentralized nature of election administration. Um, after 2016, with 
um, the various cybersecurity issues and things that we've talked about. We talk about that decentralization sometimes as a benefit, but there's also a, 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 another side to that that can be problematic. It gives a lot of discretion to the states who run the elections. So I'd like to turn to, to Rick and Michael and get a little bit of your, um, of idea of, of both of your thoughts around this decentralized nature of an administration and what you see as the benefits and the cons. Um, so why don't we start with you, Michael? So when we talk about decentralization, I think it's important to distinguish between two issues. The first is the notion of elections being decentralized insofar as separate states have their, each state has its own separate election system, its own separate code of election laws. Obviously, federal law lays something of a floor, right? All states have to abide by laws like the Voting Rights Act, HAVA, the NVRA. But within those fairly broad boundaries, states have discretion to run their elections for more or less as they see fit. Then a separate issue within each state then, historically elections have been decentralized down to the county level and down to the local level. And particularly following the 2000 election where uh, in Bush v. Gore, the Supreme Court extended equal protection principles to at least some aspects of the administration of elections, that type of decentralization where people, voters, of the same electorate, voters participating in the same statewide elections could be subject to material differences in opportunities to vote, in, uh, in different uh, officials' interpretations of election law. I think that at least some degree of centralization at the state level could help uh, give localities, give local and county officials the benefit of that greater expertise at the state. It could often be easier to have right, more uh, people with uh, greater expertise, more specialization, more of a background in election law, right, getting hired at the state, and having that ability to enforce uniform interpretations, uniform applications, uniform minimums, I, th I think is, is, a, is a benefit to election law. And, and that points a couple of really excellent points. And I was a local election official. When you talk to local election officials, they often don't want the state to you know, be telling them what to do um, because they might be constitutionally elected officers in their, in their state. When you talk to the states, they see that oftentimes that they should have every right in doing exactly what you say, making it uniform, but they don't want anything coming from the federal government telling them what to do. So Rick, I'd love your thoughts on this. And then I think this will lay the, the great foundation for the conversation around these responsibilities of conducting the election and deciding some of these procedures. Yeah, well, thanks. It's, it's great to be with you and glad to be um, on a panel uh, with Michael. Uh, so I think the first thing to point out is just from a comparative perspective, how incredibly unusual the American election administration system is uh, compared to the rest of the world. In most advanced uh, democracies, you know, think of um, uh, the UK or Canada or Germany, or, you know, th you think about uh, most places that you would consider to be an advanced democracy, there's a national nonpartisan a body that administers the election that often has quasi independent authority, like how we have a federal reserve in the United States, things like that. And, uh, you know, so if in Canada, you're in uh, Quebec or you're in British Columbia, you walk into a polling place, the machinery is going to be the same, the ballot's going to look the same, you know, things are going to be quite uniform for national elections. Uh, 
In the United States, we're running something like 10,000 simultaneous elections for president when we have a presidential election. And uh, as uh, Tammy, as you mentioned, um, power is dispersed, right? It's dispersed first among the federal, state, and local authorities. And that depends on federal law, which trumps state law, uh, and state law can trump local law, but often there's room for um, local uh, or state variation. Uh, it also differs in terms of who can control the election within a state. So if the federal government allows the state to run the election, take the example of um, trying to run a primary during COVID, where we saw some governors try to move the date of the election, uh, the primary election, because of problems with holding a safe um, election in the middle of the pandemic. And in some states, the governor could do it. In some states, the, the governor couldn't do it. Some cases went to the state Supreme Courts. And so there's a lot of litigation, right? So one of the things, and I've been tracking election litigation since the 1990s, election litigation has nearly tripled in the period post-2000 compared to pre-2000. Uh, one of the reasons is that um, because there's such a dispersion of authority and because the rules are often uncertain as to who has the authority and what authority they have, lots of this stuff gets litigated. And so that creates room for uh, partisans to come in who could see a particular advantage to one election rule or another. And so things become contentious that if we had complete uniformity, uh, we wouldn't see. Uh, but as you mentioned, complete uniformity uh, raises other dangers. So for example, if there's a danger of outside hacking into voter registration databases, uh, if it's decentralized, then maybe one state is affected. If it's nationalized, then maybe the whole country is affected. Uh, there was lots of concern in the 2016 election about whether there could be manipulation of the process. And decentralization was somewhat of a bulwark against um, you know, some kind of attack on the entire electoral process. Well, I want to stay with you, Rick, on, on this question then, because it seemed like last year we did, of course, around presidential elections, we see a lot of litigation. But why are we seeing this raft of new election bills now? Is Are, are some of them in response to all of the voluminous litigation that we saw last year, some of them seeking to remedy and you know clarify what was ambiguous? Or what do you, how do you feel um, are the, the factors behind, or what do you feel are the factors behind why we're seeing this raft of, of uh, new types of election uh, legislation? Well, I think now we have to address the elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump and his unprecedented attack on the integrity of the election process. Uh, so for a long time, Democrats and Republicans have uh, disagreed over uh, how much there is a problem about voter fraud and how much there's a problem about voter suppression. And this, this debate is, you know, in some ways, it's a little tired because we've been hearing it for so many years. And you know, we can get into the kind of what the, what the empirical evidence shows uh, if you want. But what differed in 2020 uh, was that you had a major, major presidential candidate, the incumbent president Donald Trump, who relentlessly, and by relentlessly, I mean in hundreds of comments, both online and in person, attacked the integrity of the election process. He claimed that the uh, that the election was rigged. He claimed that there was going to be fraud. He claimed that um, uh, that uh, an election could not be run fairly. And then after he lost the election in an election that I think uh, all credible analysis shows was a fairly conducted election under very trying circumstances, uh, with you know really heroic efforts of election administrators and and volunteer poll workers and others to to make it work, he attacked the election as stolen, 
And so given Trump's relentless attacks on the election and given the political hold he has on the Republican Party, this has created kind of a twofold demand uh, for uh, new election laws on the Republican side. Uh, number one, pressure from below. Uh, lots of the most ardent Republican supporters believe President Trump's false statements that the election was stolen and they're demanding change so that the election isn't stolen again or uh, to try to somehow undo the results of the election. We've been hearing noise about that. That's not a thing. We can talk about that. But uh, but also pressure from above that Trump is continuing to 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 pressure. Even today, I saw a story. He's trying to pressure Republicans in Pennsylvania to hold an audit of the election that took place back in November. And so some of these laws, I think, can be thought of as just kind of the same old usual fighting over election rules for partisan advantage. But some of it can be seen as a response uniquely to the statements that Trump has made, which have caused you know, in, uh, according to some polls, more than a majority of Republican voters to believe that the 2020 election was not conducted fairly. And if you think the election was not conducted fairly, of course, you'd want to change the rules so that it could be conducted fairly. The problem is uh, they are going after a problem that didn't exist. The election was a fair election. And, uh, you know, you had many Republican election administrators in places like Georgia and in places like Arizona standing up for the integrity of that process. And Michael, I'd love your thoughts on this, on, on, you know, if you agree with that, if there are other, other things that you think are at play here and why we're seeing this raft of election bills. No, I mean, I, I, th I, th I think Rick certainly identified several of the major reasons for just as a purely descriptive matter as to why we're seeing these bills. Just you know, in, in, to put it in a little bit of greater context, even if none of that had happened, I still think we would have seen at least some type of election modification bills, election reform bills. To take the state of Florida, for example, since 2000, there have been 91 laws passed amending the election code, sometimes minor, sometimes major overhauls. So even in ordinary circumstances, right, particularly following an election like the 2020 election where COVID showed the insufficiency of many state election codes to deal with election emergencies, in, some re in many cases, various parts of the elections codes were held unconstitutional by courts, either as applied to emergency circumstances or more broadly. There were uh, cases where courts imposed remedies that either the Republicans or the legislature or Republicans in the legislature right, didn't like. And so they want to have different approaches to that. So I, 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 I think Rick, Rick is absolutely correct in terms of many of the major pressures that we're seeing. But even independent of that, I think that both in general, as well as as a response to COVID, we would have seen substantial legislative action. It might be different in some respects, but we would still be seeing some sort of substantial legislative action anyway. And I think that one of the, the conversations that kind of carried through last year is as we realized the, the variation in the states and how they could respond in a global pandemic, whether or not they had governors um, you know, ability to, to change the date of the primary or whether or not they could expand and mail out an application to all voters or a ballot to all voters by the Secretary of State or the State Board. Or we, we really got a, a glimpse into kind of the nuts and bolts and how elections are conducted 
And I think that for many of us, we thought, okay, there was an expansion of opportunities for some voters given the pandemic. And the thought was, is once we hit 2021, would legislatures look to codify some of that like they did in Kentucky and in a few other states? Or would there be a retraction and it was just a one-time thing for the pandemic? And so I think um, one of the other aspects that I was keeping an eye on is something that is often referred to as sore loser laws. Um, and sore loser laws, you know, in, in elections, there's always some people that are not happy. Um, it's just in this moment, we've had a, a more rigorous and, and oftentimes violent reaction for those who have lost the election. And what I'm hearing from, uh, from others is there's a transfer of that angst and that anger, not only manifesting itself in the public sphere, but also um, translating into what some are referring to as power grabs. So I wanna really kind of dive into the various ways in which we're seeing across the states changes in the power of who is going to make certain types of determinations. So um, I don't know, Michael, if you want to start off and talk about, you know, some of the, the various election bills that you're seeing out there and how they do, in fact, change that landscape of what kind of determinations a governor can make or what exactly can a secretary of state do. And a great example, of course, is in Arizona, where a bill was just passed that the end of the bill is at the end of the current secretary's term. Um, so there's some, some of this isn't even being masked as being nonpartisan. Um, but I'd like to dig into some of that, that um, responsibility and, and decision-making um, legislation that we're seeing. Sure. And I, I think a lot of this also right, ties into the election emergency theme insofar as at least some of the objections that were raised were to the fact that the governor or the secretary of state unilaterally undertook emergency measures right in response to COVID that weren't authorized by right, state election laws, right? So we, one, of the, one of the more valid grounds for pushback that, that I've seen, for example, is the, the question of can actual ballots be automatically sent out to all, to all registered voters? Or can the governor or a secretary of state right, exercise unilateral, or even a county in, in, in Iowa, I think it was, the, the issue arose, can just uh, a, a county election official unilaterally decide to automatically send out actual ballots to voters, or, or, or I shouldn't even say to, to anyone on the voter registration list uh, you know, without receiving a, a request or if they're not on the if they're not on the request list. So that's something where I think reasonable people can differ. I think that that particularly for states that aren't built for 100 percent vote by mail uh, for 100 percent vote by mail elections to just have that decision be made on the fly. It raises legitimate concerns. Right. I've, for example, pressed an alternate reform automatically. You can automatically send absentee ballot request forms to everybody on the list. I mean, there are the, they're, they're forms. You can download them off the Internet. I don't see any valid reason not to send them out which some state, or at least there are some bills that would even go so far as to prohibit that. And I think that that goes a, a step further than, than is a good idea. I think in, to, to loop back to your question about institutional choice, who should be making different types of decisions? I think the two main issues that we're seeing here is number one, to what extent should the power to make the rules governing elections or to change or suspend the rules governing elections rest with state governors and state secretaries of state 
And with regard to that, I think that in emergency circumstances, you have to confer discretion to respond to unexpected scenarios. In those sorts of situations, I think red lines, right, saying there are certain steps that shouldn't be taken is a better approach than trying to have a legislature micromanage an emergency. The other big issue is then after the election, though, who should be deciding the election results and to what extent should the certified results of the Secretary of State be deemed final or be deemed subject to some sort of further review? That's the that's the other issue a lot of these bills are raising because some bills would give courts more power, some bills would give the, the, the legislature more power. And I think that these are two very different uh, sets of questions. And Rick, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. One comment I, I would want to make real quickly is when we talk about the ballots being mailed out um, without a request, it's interesting to me because many, many states have what they call all-mail precincts. So if you have a few enough number of voters living within a precinct, they do automatically mail out ballots, even in a state that isn't you know, much of a vote by mail or absentee state. So it's it's an interesting um, argument and I understand why it's being made, but it's oftentimes, um, and I raised this with a couple of legislators that I spoke to recently, um, that in their own states, they have all mail elections for local elections or all mail precincts. Um, it, so it's it's an interesting kind of perspective. Rick, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on this kind of question. I think the first thing to note is that there's, and I think Michael was getting at this in his last answer, that there's a difference between laws that make it harder for people to register and to vote. We might call those voter suppression, although that's a you know ideologically loaded term, um, and laws that mess with how elections are conducted in terms of the who does the counting and how all that works. Uh, I call that the danger of election subversion. And I tried to draw the distinction between those two in a recent piece I had in the New York Times. On the question of voter suppression, you know, uh, uh, you know, why would it be that you can't send out absentee ballot applications to every voter? Uh, I think the answer is because th these uh, legislators are trying to shape the electorate and they think that this is going to uh, give them a partisan advantage. I think actually, as a matter of fact, this is not true. Just as when Trump claims that the election is rigged, he's depressing turnout on his own side. Why would you bother voting if you think that the election is rigged? I think some of the most, take, take Florida where Michael is, some of the most reliable absentee ballot voters are older voters uh, who might have a harder time getting to the polls, who are many reliably Republicans. So it's it's not clear at all to me that these efforts of voter suppression are going to be successful. And I, I think they're actually going to be quite unpopular once we get to the next election. And voters realize that it's been made harder for them to vote. But that is an analytically separate question from messing with how votes are counted and how, how uh, elections are being conducted. So when I think about the things that uh, worry me the most about what I'm seeing in the raft of new bills, uh, one of the things I see is uh, that Brad Raffensperger, who was the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, who stood up to uh, President Trump when Trump asked him to, quote unquote, find 11,780 additional votes to flip the results of the state from Georgia to, uh, Georgia for Biden to, to Georgia for Trump. Raffensperger, you know, refused. He released the, uh, the audio of the call with Trump and he, you know, he stood up. He was a, one of the heroes of the 2020 election, in my view, um, 
even though I don't agree with everything he's done, you know, so same with Brian Kemp and, and Doug Ducey, two Republican governors who stood up and said, we're not manipulating election results. But in response to that, Georgia in its recent uh, voting law has taken the secretary of state out of the process of serving on state election boards and replaced him with someone handpicked by the Republican legislature. Uh, someone who might be willing to manipulate the rules. Well, how might the rules be manipulated? Well, one thing that we see in this new Georgia law is that it says that the uh, state election board can take over four counties uh, voting rules for up to three months, I believe. And uh, you could easily imagine the handpicked new member of this uh, board trying to take over how voting is conducted in Fulton County, which is a heavily Democratic county in Georgia, doing things that might mess with how the election is conducted, how votes are counted uh, in ways that uh, would not have the adequate uh, checks and balances. To, to give a, another example, um, Texas is considering a law uh, that um, would make it easier to go to court to overturn an election, no longer relying on a a clear and convincing evidence standard, which is a very high evidentiary standard to overturn election, which in my view is an appropriate standard. We don't want courts willy-nilly overturning elections to making it a preponderance standard. It's just more likely than not. And to change what you have to show in order to overturn an election. So that's another example uh, where uh, it might be possible to subvert the will of the people. And and let me just mention that the biggest subversion of the will of the people would be completely and totally constitutional. And it's something that's not really on people's uh, 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 radar right now, but it should be. The constitution says that state legislatures get to set the rules for conducting presidential elections. And the Supreme Court in 2000 and Bush versus Gore said, the state legislature could take back any time its power to simply decide which Uh, presidential candidate gets all of the state's electoral college votes. So the Florida legislature could decide that it's going to pass a law that says, no, people are not voting for president anymore in Florida. We're just deciding. Now, that might be politically unpopular. That's a huge power grab. But the Constitution allows that to happen. So when you're seeing these shifts in who decides and how they decide, we have to kind of ask both, is this legal? Uh, is this constitutional, but but also, you know, is this morally objectionable? So uh, I think taking away any state uh, legislature, taking away the ability of voters to vote for president would be abhorrent, but I think it would be constitutional. Florida was invoked, Michael. Um, so on, on that very point, I think one of the, the challenges that we've seen both in 2020 and, and other times is the timeliness of when decisions and the rules of engagement are being made, created, or changed. And so if it were the case that a legislature in this legislative session said, we're not going to have a popular vote anymore in our state to elect electors, we're going to decide. And they decide it now in 2021. That's one thing. But if they decide after the certification of the official results, that's another another issue entirely. So how, just to make sure that people can sleep tonight, how likely do you think this is going to happen? Or are you going to keep people awake all night um, worrying about what your next uh, statements are going to be? <laughs> well, if, if, if you had asked me right on election day, how likely anything <laughs> that happened was to happen, I would have said, absolutely not. So I don't, I don't know that my, that my predictions are, are all that reassuring, but no, I, I think that obviously, right. We have a very going back well now a century and a half, right. 
universal uh, popular election for, for president. It, it is ingrained in our popular culture. It is ingrained in our, our, our political culture. So I think that it is extraordinarily unlikely that a legislature would say, we don't care what the, we don't care what the people say, we're just going to appoint our own electors. The most likely scenario in which that power would be invoked, I think, would be where there is a, where there is a legal question, where the Secretary of State has interpreted a state law one way, and based on that interpretation, has either counted or refused to count certain ballots and based the, the certification on that decision. And the legislature says, no, you're ignoring the text of the law. You're ignoring what the law really says. You're usurping our authority to set the rules of the election. And so based on our view of the correct interpretation of the law, actually the people have elected the opposite candidate. And so their argument would be, we are not usurping the will of the people. In fact, we are giving you the correct outcome of the election. And I think that you know, the, the Supreme Court has unfortunately left enough uncertainty and ambiguity in, the, in its precedents, very few precedents con, uh, concerning Article 2, that I, I, I certainly don't think that that would be something impossible for a legislature to, to claim the authority to do. And I'll point out there is one, and depending on how you want to read the statutes, two states already where the legislature statutorily has reserved its author that authority for itself, has claimed the power to step in to decide what the quote unquote correct result of a, of a presidential election is. And certainly if a legislature is able to point to a state law giving it that authority, that would, that would enhance its claim to be able to do so. And those two states are? North, North Carolina expressly does it. And then Michigan has a statute which there is, there is ambiguity but can reasonably be read to include that. So now that I have both of you here, I just had a thought that um, what happens if or when in the states that have voter initiatives, which is um, in many states it seems have the ability to subvert the will of the legislature by voter initiative and direct balloting. If the, there were voter initiatives saying we will continue to have our electors selected by the people would that prevent the legislatures from changing and taking that power back? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I don't think we have enough time to delve into all the details, but- I'm, I'll plant that seed. <laughs> well, let me, let me just say that, uh, you know, there, there was a, uh, there's, a, there's somewhat potentially of a distinction between the power to use the initiative to govern the allocation of electors versus the power to set election rules generally. Uh, because the power to choose the electors is an Article Two of the Constitution, and the power to set congressional elections is an Article One, Section Four. But it's a parallel kind of issue, and it was actually a huge legal issue in the um, 2020 election. So when you hear a lot about, say, Josh Hawley, who's trying to defend why he objected to what happened in Pennsylvania, um, even after the insurrection on January sixth. He didn't claim it was fraud that, that, that made Pennsylvania's electoral votes suspect, but the fact that the state Supreme Court came in and came up with rules for how to deal with holding the election during the pandemic that violated what the state legislature wanted. This is uh, known kind of in the, in the um, 
among election law people as the independent state legislature doctrine. And the question is, does the state legislature get to trump every other state actor in the state in terms of what the rules are, including the election administrators, you know, an executive agency or the state courts or the voters acting through an initiative process? Now, in a case that the Supreme Court decided back in, I think it's 2015, called uh, Arizona State Legislature versus Arizona Independent um, Redistricting Commission, if I'm getting that name right, uh, the Supreme Court on a five to four vote said that uh, a even though the Constitution gives the state legislature the power to set redistricting rules, the uh, voters in the initiative process can override those rules and can create a redistricting commission to do that. And it was a five to four vote where Justice Ginsburg took the view that the term legislature is used in this part of the constitution means the legislative process. And if you've got initiative, that, that's good enough. The big dissenter in that case was Chief Justice John Roberts, who said that you know this legislature means the legislative body. And it was a five to four decision. Justice Kennedy was in the majority. Justice Kennedy has retired. It's not clear if this rule will survive. And so there are a ton of questions. And I think inevitably within the next few years, the Supreme Court is going to address this question of how much can other actors besides the state legislature set the rules for conducting elections? And it's going to be a place where there's going to be, I think, another partisan divide with Republican legislatures seeking to back back against state Supreme Courts, particularly in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, uh, excuse me, uh, Pennsylvania and North Carolina, which have uh, and potentially soon Michigan and potentially soon Wisconsin that will have Republican dominated state legislatures, but Democratic dominated elected state Supreme Courts, where you can imagine the state Supreme Court wanting to go more voter expansive and the legislature wanting to go more voter restrictive and this conflict just um, uh, bubbling up. Did you want to add anything to that, Michael? No, I, 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 I think Rick laid out the laid out the issue uh, ex ex extremely well. I, and we, we saw several opinions from the 2020 election where several justices uh, in issues arising on the court show called shadow docket, right? A request for emergency relief in election related cases. Several justices embraced the, 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 the independent state legislature doctrine. The only, the only detail I, I, I will add is throughout the, throughout the 19th century, that was the predominant understanding of these, these provisions of the constitution that Rick talked about, that you can find examples from state Supreme Courts, from uh, the chambers of Congress themselves in resolving election contests, that where there were conflicts between what a state law said and what a state constitutional provision said with regard to a federal election, they went with what the they went with what the state statute said. It was as we got to the 20th century then that this doctrine was was more inconsistently applied, and then ultimately fell fell into desuetude. But if, if you look at the history of the 19th Amendment, which uh, was ratified pursuant to Article Five of the Constitution. Article five, like these other provisions of the constitution, give power specifically to the state legislature. And the Supreme Court held that states legislatures that ratified the 19th amendment, which extended the franchise to women because they were acting under article five of the constitution. It didn't matter that their state constitutions prohibited them from, from uh, extending the franchise to women. That given that conflict between the power to ratify under article five versus state constitutional restrictions, the Supreme Court said those state constitutional restrictions are completely unenforceable. 
Thank you. And I knew that our time was going to fly by. I have um, one or two more quick questions, and then we're going to turn to some of the questions um, in the chat. Um, one of the questions that I had is that one of the things that we're also seeing in the last year or so has been a rise in um, um, threats and uh, violence against election officials, poll workers. And we know that there's no such thing as a perfect election because elections are conducted by people, for people, and there can be keying errors, there can be proofing errors, there can be people going to the wrong place. People, you know, there's, there are a lot of things that can happen that are errors that aren't um, in any way malfeasance or fraud, um, they're just humans. Um, however, what we're seeing is a criminalization of some of those errors in some places. And I'm wondering, given that we're seeing many election officials in, I believe, Pennsylvania was as high as a third of their local election officials are leaving the field um, in other places. We know that in the next two or three years, we'll have as much as a quarter to a third of all election officials are set to retire. How do we attract people if, in fact, this legislation you know, criminalizes their activities when they make a mistake? Um, and do we see this sort of criminalization of, um, of errors in election administration being a challenge, a new challenge we have to overcome when we're recruiting poll workers and individuals um, to help conduct the elections? Because it really is um, practically a volunteer effort in this country of hundreds of thousands of people. So Rick, do you want to jump in that one? Yeah, I mean, I think it is just um, horrible that election um, administrators have been subject to threats and violence and harassment. And um, it's already a job where people are underpaid and it's already a job where people are under tremendous pressure. I mean, there's nothing besides going to war that this country does uh, that, uh, that is more of a, of, of a concentrated national effort than uh, running an election. Maybe I put, you know, getting vaccines uh, to people during COVID uh, up there, but, you know, it is a tremendous undertaking already under pressure. Uh, so one of the things I called for in that New York Times op-ed is combat pay for um, election administrators. Uh, but you're right. And um, it, it, the other thing I would say is that an election system, and this is a point I make in my, my book, uh, Election Meltdown, my 2020 book, Election Meltdown, uh, I call it the weakest link axiom of election administration. An election system is only as strong as its weakest components. And so if you have parts of a state where the election is run in a shoddy basis because there's inadequate resources or inadequate staffing or inadequate training, then that's the place where attention is going to focus if you have a very close election or if somebody is trying to undermine confidence in the elections. So back when I wrote my 2012 book, uh, The Voting Wars, I talked about an election for a state Supreme Court in Wisconsin, where um, a, a, uh, an election official kept the results from her county on her personal laptop, and she misread the results and then reported the correct results the next day, and it flipped the election from a 2000 uh, uh, vote uh, margin for the Democrat to a 15,000 vote margin for the Republican. Uh, we can't have elections being run on a shoestring. And of course, and you mentioned this earlier, um, one of the only reasons we were able to have such a successful election is because we had a half a billion dollars in private funding. I think about 350 million of it coming from the Mark Zuckerberg and, and his family. Uh, 
uh, as charity to election officials because Congress didn't listen to the bipartisan report that Michael and I and others issued and saying, you need to adequately fund elections. This money should be coming from the government. It should not be coming from charity. Uh, but you know, it's one thing to say no charitable contributions. And I have no problem with that. So long as you adequately fund elections, we need to adequately fund elections. We need to create incentives. How about a lottery for people who work as poll workers, you know, if that can get people to be vaccinated, but we need incentives. We need to protect these election officials. We need to uh, do more to um, uh, promote the professionalism. And I think, you know, part of the work of, of the school um, uh, where we're speaking today you know, is in that vein. And it's so important. And the more you can professionalize things, the less the politics can infect things. And, you know, one of the reasons, I'll, I'm sorry, I'm on a soapbox here, but uh, you really hit me on a uh, something I feel very passionately about. One of the reasons why I think that things went well in Michigan, despite the fact that Detroit had a history of poor election administration is that the Democratic Secretary of State, uh, Jocelyn Benson, brought in a longtime Republican election administrator, Christopher Thomas, to oversee what was going on in Detroit. And he was literally in the room where it happened, right? He saw how those votes were counted and he could vouch for whether the procedures were followed. We need more of that uh, going forward. Michael, your thoughts on, on the same same topic? I, I echo everything that everything that that Rick said. I think that his his description, his prescriptions are all 100% on point. And I think it, it 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 also points to the notion that right to the extent that we can approach this as a bipartisan process, right, where Republican secretaries of state are able to do what they can to have buy-in from right their Democratic predecessors, Democratic right up, up, as they say opponents, but I mean the real respected election right Democratic people on the other side and vice versa, right Democrats like Jocelyn Benson are able to have right Republicans who are respected in election administration be involved, be able to see, be able to personally attest to the fact that everything was 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 on the up and up i think that that's something that among the persuadable component of the public right i mean there are some people who no matter what you say no matter whether they're just going to believe what they believe but among the people who are amenable to right evidence and i think that 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 is exactly the sort of credible message and credible messenger that can help bolster faith and confidence in the in the electoral process so I want to stay with you, Michael, on, on a question, something that, that Rick brought up is what we're hearing about the undoing of the election and that, you know, the reseating of, of the former president and that sort of thing. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, the constitutionality of that. And, you know, because it's it's picking up steam somehow. And so um, there's some comments in the in the Q&A around, you know, how do we stop some of this um, this these power grabs, how do we, how do we, you know, bring it down a notch and make sure that we get back to, um, you know, a new normal where in fact, we have sane laws, we abide by them, we accept them, we accept the outcome at the end of the, at the end of the day. Um, and so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether or not, in fact, August could see um, a change in the White House. No, there's not going to be a change in the White House in August. There's no, there, 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 there's no undoing the results of the election. I mean, unless Joe Biden retires, right, and Kamala Harris takes over, there's not going to be a, a a change in the White House. That's not a thing. That's no, there's no. 
No, just flat out. No. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> what, what about this? What if what if um, uh, Trump gets elected Speaker of the House and and Biden and um, and Harris resign? That's okay, you possible. found the constitutional loophole, Rick. There you there you go. Yeah. Um, a couple of the other questions that we have here um, have to do with you know what what can we do to fight back against these attacks on democracy. And there's you know, a constant spate of, spat of warnings about the attacks, but no information on how to counter it. What can, what can your, your average concerned citizen do in this moment when they see things that, that causes them concern either in their own state, because I think there's one set of actions you can do when it's happening in your own state um, and um, when it's happening elsewhere. So Rick, you want to take that one first? Yeah, well, so one thing I would point out is that one of the benefits of a hyper-decentralized election system is it means that there are lots of points of entry if you're trying to influence policy. So I think, you know, uh, transparency is one of the most important uh, things that we need to keep an election system honest. And so pushing for transparency, pushing for having election officials announce their procedures ahead of time and ensuring that there's meaningful observation, not observation that is obtrusive, that interferes with the process, but observation that allows to, you to see what's going on. Um, one of the things we saw in this um, COVID season is uh, you know, uh, cameras that uh, are broadcasting what's going on all the time. I think that's a great thing. I think that should continue. Uh, you know, that can help people. So you can pressure your uh, local election officials or work with them, maybe pressure is the wrong word, to ensure that there's adequate transparency and fairness and observation opportunities. Um, and uh, the other thing people can do is, at, at a personal level is try to um, uh, bolster reliable sources of information and not spread misinformation and disinformation. It's so easy when you're on social media and you see something that seems too good to be true to just share it. Uh, you need to think twice, make sure it's actually accurate, rely on election ministry. So one of the recommendations that uh, was in the report that Michael and I were part of that fair elections during a crisis report was that a election administrator should have official accounts on social media. So you know where you go for the reliable source. You know that X County uh, Board of Elections has this account and you can get accurate information. And so check that the information you're sharing is accurate. And if you see something you don't like, there are ways to try to um, uh, maneuver for change. Michael, do you have some suggestions? The only, the only thing I'll add, I think all those suggestions are ex exactly on point. The only thing I'll, I'll add to that is, and this, this, this is something more on election officials end, I think in some jurisdictions, right, like poll watchers are viewed with suspicion, right? Like that there's a notion that we want, we, we want to keep them as, you know, within the bounds of the law, but you know, we're gonna just do the minimum we have to do. We're not thrilled that they're there, but you know, we, we have to tolerate them. So we will to the extent required by statute. I, and certainly, of course, right there, 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 there's a concern, right? You don't want people intimidating voters. You don't want people disrupting, disrupting polling places. But I think that to the that poll watchers can play uh, a role in facilitating that transparency, right? To the extent that both political parties, that both major candidates are able to have representatives there on site. If election officials, you know, the, the, there were questions raised as to whether they were told certain things. I think it was in Georgia, in Fulton County, and voting continued even though they were told it, 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 it stopped or whatever. 
if election if if poll watchers are seen as as one important way of building public confidence in a potentially adverse election outcome, right? That if a candidate goes to their poll watchers and the poll watcher says, I was there the whole time. I saw everything. I I got nothing for you. There's nothing, there's nothing sketchy I can point to. I think that that makes it a lot harder then to be able to raise right public objections to to you know what what went on in the, in the conduct of an election. So like building on building on that transparency, I think having those those videos is good and facilitating access for poll watchers rather than doing like the bare minimum with a grudging toleration. I think could could help play a role. Again, there's going to be some members of the public on both sides that no matter what aren't going to be satisfied and will buy into right, various various conspiracy theories. But for that persuadable chunk of the public, the more you're able to dispel right uh, possible objections, the more the harder it will be to try to get them amped up for for concerns about the election challenges to the to the election. I think that's all spot on. I think one of the challenges here, so having, you know, I was an election official for more than a decade in Maricopa County. We, um, back early on in my career there, um, the state law passed to have 24-7 cameras on your tabulation from the logic and accuracy during the entire time ballots were counted, the logic and accuracy at the end, hand count audits, um, all of the things that we tend to think of as, as shoring up the transparency. I did the training of our observers and I embraced having political observers in the polling place because you can't have your eyes everywhere. And a lot of times you, you know, I did the training of poll workers and I saw people sleeping. I called them out on it, but I didn't know how long they were sleeping and what they weren't listening to. So it's definitely a challenge for election officials, particularly in large jurisdictions where they really have to have their hands and their arms around um, a large number of people doing a lot of tasks. So I think that for, you know, for people listening to make sure that if you are concerned, be a poll worker, be a poll watcher. Last year was the most observed, most transparent election, in addition to being the most secure and, um, and seeing the most, uh, you know, participation that we've seen in a long time. As we look to the future, and um, we've only got a few minutes here, as we look to the future there, we've got redistricting um, coming up. Um, we have, you know, the, the changes and the challenges in the midterm of what we might see as some of this plays out next year. So I'd like just some closing thoughts around what do you think will be one, the thing that has you the most concern, whether it's a place, a law, a trend, um, and what's giving you hope? So um, we'll start with you, Rick, on kind of where where are you watching? What are you watching for? And um, at the end of the day, what um, you know, what's what's giving you uh, hope for our democracy? Are you asking specifically about redistricting or just generally? No, just the the the. You can talk about redistricting if you want, but in the in the next year, year and a half, as we move into the midterms and, you know, many legislatures are winding down, we're seeing signy die in a few places, but some places they still have activity occurring and then we've got next year, next session as well. Um, so what are you kind of keeping an eye on um, if, if it's a certain number of states or a certain trend and um, and then, you know, what what's giving you hope? Well, my, my biggest concern is uh, the continued erosion of trust on the Republican side in the fairness and integrity of the election process caused by Donald Trump. 
and uh, what we can do about that, as well as the spread of disinformation about the 2020 election. Because an election depends upon uh, the uh, losers agreeing that it was a fair election and agreeing to accept the results legitimate and fight another day. Of course, nobody wants to lose an election, but that's different than calling the election into question. And it's kind of a long-term project about how to deal with that. I have a book coming out in February called Cheap Speech, where I talk about at least how to deal with the disinformation side of these things. And because these are multifaceted problems, they require multifaceted solutions, not enough time in five minutes to go through all of them. But I do think that this is the biggest issue facing our time is the threat to um, le the legitimacy of American elections. What I'm looking forward to next, uh, forward is not the right word, but I, what I'm looking at next is what the Supreme Court is likely to do in uh, a case called Brnovich versus Democratic uh, National Committee. That's a case that the court heard argument in earlier in the spring. It should be decided by the end of June. At issue in that case is whether Section 2 or whether and how Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act applies when laws are challenged. Uh, laws like voter ID laws are challenged as um, violating Section 2 of the Act, which provides that uh, minority voters have the same opportunity as others to participate in the political process and to elect representatives of their choice. We have a fair number of lower court cases on how this applies. It was what was used to strike down Texas's first attempt at a voter ID law, but was used to uphold Texas's more relaxed approach to voter ID. And so we're going to see in that case, uh, the Supreme Court's going to tell us for the country, how much federal courts will be able to continue to use the Voting Rights Act as a backstop to prevent uh, efforts to make it harder for minority voters to register and to vote. Great. Michael, bring us home. <laughs> to end on maybe a positive note, one of the things that bolstered my confidence and gives me optimism and, and faith looking to the future is just how readily the courts were willing to throw out all of the frivolous uh, post-election litigation. And it doesn't matter who the, who the judges were, Trump appointee judges, Democratic appointee judges, other Republican appointee judges, that we didn't see the judiciary trying to take it upon themselves to reverse the results of the election or to distort the law or distort the constitution to come to, come to just indefensible outcomes. And so having seen the judiciary perform its function and perform it in a nonpartisan manner, I think was was one of the, the silver linings from this election cycle and gives me confidence as we head toward future elections. Wonderful. So with that, I want to thank um, Larry, Lee, Rick, Michael, and all of you for joining us today on this very important conversation. Keep track of what's happening in your state legislatures. Um, remember this when you go to vote the next time. And if you see that your options are reduced or you have to change the way in which you like to vote, um, remember that it could be due to activities that we saw this year and make sure that your voices are heard not only at the ballot box, but also on the phone um, in a town halls um, when you have those opportunities. So with that, thank you everyone, be safe, be well, um, and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>